0: SAS Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SAS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit AustinLawrence.com today, and let's build something bigger.
1: Welcome to the SaaS Backwards podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses
0: forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is Andrew Bolus a fractional CMO and B2B growth advisor who's driven revenue for firms from Series A to Series E. That's startup to massive. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on the show, Ken. That's a pleasure. And before we dig in, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice?
1: Sure. So I've been doing marketing for about 15 years, mostly in leadership positions at different startups. Most recently, I was a CMO at a serious B-tech startup, and my role there ended in December. And since then, I've been doing more fractional work and consulting work at different startups.
0: Well, that's great. It's kind of fun to have your fingers in more than one pie, you know?
1: It is nice, and it also gives me exposure to different industries and different challenges.
0: Yeah, certainly. I know that in our practice, that cross-pollination is highly valuable, so that's great that you're getting that. So why don't we just dig right in and Can you start by sort of explaining what you view the fractional CMO to be, you know, what that role is and, you know, what it offers to companies?
1: Sure. So I'll just to define it, I think a fractional CMO is a marketing executive that you can hire in a part-time capacity. So it can be four hours per week, eight hours, two days per week. And I think there's a lot of advantages to the fractional model. So I'm happy to share a few quick ones with you. Um, So I'd say there's five advantages. One, you get an experienced executive at a fraction of the cost of a full-time exec. Two, it's much faster than hiring a full-time CMO. They can start next week. Three, it's lower risk than hiring a full-time CMO because it's a month-to-month contract. Four, they're integrated into your team to fully understand your business. And five, from working with your team, they sort of coach your team along the way as well. So it up-levels your marketing expertise and your teams as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the proposition is a really good one, right? That you may not be in a position where you can afford or take advantage of the capabilities of someone in that role full-time, right? Exactly. And it's also,
1: you often need different types of CMOs at different stages. So if you're very early on, maybe you just need someone with a strong product marketing background who can help you with some of your go-to-market, some of that initial messaging and positioning. But then later on, you also might then need a CMO who's a lot stronger at driving growth, for example. So the fact that you can kind of be flexible without hiring a full-time C-level executive is an advantage.
0: And are there situations that you think make the most sense? Like, you know, if a CMO listening, how would he or she know that she needs that kind of support? Like, are there questions they're asking themselves or things they're experiencing in their business that might cry out for a fractional executive role like this?
1: Sure. Usually they're experiencing a challenge where the solution isn't very clear. So a lot of the founders or CEOs I talk to, they know their marketing is ineffective, but they don't necessarily know why or know how to even get started to fix it. They just know, you know, they're doing a few webinars, they're putting out content, but it's just not working. And they're just wondering, hey, how do we fix this? And obviously when I start looking into it, it could be a combination of different things, but it just depends from one company to the next.
0: Yes, I sort of call that the blood on the floor, right? We know that somebody's injured, but we're not certain what the injury is. We got to go look for that, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, you got to like diagnose it and figure out what's going on.
0: Yeah, and in terms of the justification, do people find it easier or harder to justify a fractional CMO role? What are the ways that you help them justify that approach to staffing the leadership?
1: So it depends. So I think if they don't have a full-time head of marketing, I think it's easier to justify because it's presented as, hey, this is a part-time consultant. They're coming in with a lot of experience, a lot of frameworks, templates, playbooks that they can help us implement quickly and sort of get up to speed quickly. So I think in that case, it, it is easier to justify. I think also the other advantage of it is a fractional is supposed to only be there for a certain period of time, kind of enable and help your team but they're not really supposed to function as a full-time employee. So that's the idea is, hey, they're going to ideally leave us a lot better off than we were before we started working with them.
0: The campfire principle, right? Yeah. They're gonna leave you better off. I like it. So is this a cost-effective way to expand your marketing team and improve the performance of marketing?
1: I think it is, especially in sort of early and mid-stage startups where when you think about it, hiring a full-time C level executive with a lot of experience is very costly. There's usually a contract that has to be signed. There's severance. There's all kinds of clauses in there. So the fact that you can get someone part-time and you know get a lot of the results quickly. I do think it's very cost effective and that it ends up being, you know, sort of a fraction of the cost, which is where the phrase comes from. And this person doesn't also need benefits. They don't need time off. So there's that as well that I think reduces the cost of it.
0: Right. So the agreement with the advisor is going to be finite in a lot of ways. Right.
1: Exactly. So like a common one would be eight hours per week for like one month to start. And then it's a month to month agreement where at any point, either party can end it. And then the advantage too is that advisor, if they're working like a one day per week, they're on your Slack, they have an email account and they're pretty integrated into your team over time.
0: I guess the question I have is if marketing is not effective for the company. So one of the transform benefits would be, we're gonna find out why you're not effective and we're gonna sort of change how marketing is functioning. Do you get involved with trying to justify the marketing function to other C-suite execs? I mean, like defending budgets and things like that to the CFO?
1: Yeah, I feel like if you're working in marketing, you're sort of constantly doing that in some way or the other, because I feel like a lot of the stereotypes are kind of set against you in the first place. So I don't even like to repeat some of the stereotypes because I feel like even just repeating them in a nonchalant way kind of strengthens ideas, which I kind of hate doing. So yeah, I think that's part of it. But from my perspective, to the other advantage I have is I've managed BDRs and SDRs in the past. So even when I help from a marketing perspective, it's not just, hey, I'm going to generate more leads for you or a lot of engagement. It's, hey, I'll get them all the way to like demo requests. And then I'm happy to even review some of your demo call recordings and even give you some advice if you need help with like discovery or running proper demos. So at least that's kind of the advantage I bring to it. And that's kind of what I try to focus on when speaking with CEOs and CFOs.
0: Yeah. I mean, the CFO conversation, to be honest, as an agency executive, they're always very difficult. By the time I'm in the CFO's office, you know, they've got the knife out, you know, we don't have a planning conversation. We have sort of a, this is the result of the plan conversation. So what's the key to success as a CMO or marketing leader? In those CFO conversations, is there some way you prepare for and preempt those conversations?
1: Sure. There's a few ways. So as a marketing leader, especially like when I was working full time, I actually prefer to own a pipeline number as in, you know, marketing is responsible for this many opportunities, this many book demos. However, you want to sort of think of it or measure it. There's different ways. And I know that puts sort of a target on my back in some ways, but it also gives me a lot more leverage with the CFO because then it's marketing and sales are both responsible for revenue. And it's no longer just marketing coming to the CFO with a wish list and the CFO even questioning, hey, like, why do we need to do that? Or what's marketing even doing? Do we need marketing? Because I just never want to have those conversations to sort of start with. So that's kind of the approach I take. And I'm happy to sort of dive deeper into even how I try to even structure like the marketing team and
0: things like that. You know what? I really think that's awesome. You know, it sort of depowers the whole conversation, doesn't it? And actually transfers the power back to you saying, hey, I'll own a number, you know, give me my budget and I'll own a number. Otherwise, you know, I'll be happy to play in vanity metric land and we won't do much,
1: right? Exactly. And this is also why, I even prefer to ideally manage the BDR as SDR function because then I could own the full pipeline number and then the CRO owns the revenue number. And then it, the advantage is that it forces alignment and it makes it so both the CMO and the CRO are equally responsible when either goals are achieved or missed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big movement, right? Among a lot of the SaaS firms to move BDRs into marketing, because it really is a market development function, right? You're trying to figure out who might be a prospect and when, and that's really not necessarily a sales function. It doesn't have
1: to be. Exactly. And in my experience too, that team is often one of the most neglected because their training enablement is almost very different than what you need to give to like a sales rep who's running demos and sort of trying to progress- conversations to actual deals. So in my experience that BDR SDR function is often just not getting the right training, the right tools, and even their knowledge is often not even up to date. So I think from a marketing perspective, marketing can add a lot of value there.
0: Yeah, that's a big source of our conversations within Austin Lawrence are often about, you know, the BDR role, what they need to be prepared for to be successful, right? What are the ingredients of success? You know, training, education, you know, not just training on how to be better at smiling and dialing or social selling, but also business acumen, right? Conferring knowledge to them. So you have a 24-year-old person calling a 54-year-old person. They better be really good, you know? So it's definitely an issue. Hey, maybe we should talk a little bit about like some of the roles that you play within this fractional CMO environment. Kind of switch gears a little bit and one of the things when we had our prep session, you wanted to talk about the difference between what an agency is, sort of like a thinking agency, versus consulting companies that might implement CRM or marketing automation. It might be good for you to kind of share your perspective on those two kinds of firms and you know why you would choose one over the other. Sure, and I
1: think those phrases are even tricky because now you have consulting sort of firms who I think sometimes acted. As agencies, and then you do have agencies, I tend to find that they're more boutique or whatever that actually act like a consulting firm. So even those phrases I think are kind of intermixed. In my experience, where I've had like a bad agency experience, it's usually where the person who's selling me on the proposal is very experienced. But then once the contract is signed and the work starts, the team who's doing the work I find out is sort of a lot more junior and those experienced people are not really involved in the work as much. So it ends up feeling like a disconnect. Hey, like, you know, the proposal made sense, your rate made sense, but the quality of the work just doesn't match what we were expecting. So that's the big thing I try to look into now is even like if I'm interested in working with an agencies, well, who's going to be doing the work? And I try to like at least look into their experience. And if I can even talk with them before signing the contract, that's ideal. But, you know, it's not always a possibility. But I know with smaller agencies will sometimes give you
0: that flexibility. Yeah, so we call that selling with the A team and servicing with the Z team. Yeah, Yeah, you don't even get the B team. I mean, that's a big problem, you know, in a boutique agency, which would describe us. There's a lot of gravity around me and maybe one or two of my senior people. And we sort of make the magic happen. We can't do all the work, but you certainly want to know that the strategy is going to be guided by, if not built by, that senior team, right?
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, someone with your experience just adds a lot of credibility then to the agency. And because it's boutique too, you guys can generally deliver much higher quality work. When you're at a bigger agency, they're often just looking at you as, I don't know, I guess a line on their balance sheet. How much is this, you know, <laughs> company bringing in? How much is it costing us? And how can we keep margins, I guess, higher or, or whatever it is, or how can we upsell them and, and sort of like make it they're so just that we're putting, always just around? putting
0: you in the machine, man.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it feels like with the larger agencies.
0: There's no doubt about it. I mean, they're built like big law firms, right? So it's a professional services model and you know, the senior creative team, you know, those people are billing three, four, five hundred dollars an hour like their attorneys. And we like to do that too. We just don't bill quite as much. But you're more important at a boutique, right? So there's always fit. You always want to be in the right home. But there are firms, you know, we've seen it, you know, we're a HubSpot partner and we've seen A lot of like design firms or they were Salesforce implementers. Now they're also HubSpot implementers. They're a very different beast than an agency, right? That can be a strategic partner to a CMO.
1: Exactly. And I think that's what it comes down to is like, what's the nature of sort of a relationship and what are you hoping to get out of the relationship? And is it like kind of a one-time project or is it an ongoing relationship where you're hoping that sort of the agency, you know, sticks around and helps you grow as well so
0: we touched on this a little bit but what other kind of guideposts do you use like what's your playbook for choosing an agency sure so there's sort of four things i think
1: about like expertise so are they sort of world class in that area specifically of where you're seeking help results do they have results to prove it value is it better than you doing it yourself or hiring someone part-time or full-time to do it and then size. And as I mentioned, my preference is boutique agencies over large agencies.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the cost of doing business. So I don't think we're ever the cheapest way to do anything, right? And in fact, I'm gladly will say that to a prospect. You know, there are always cheaper ways to do this work. You can hire in-house. You don't have to pay the markup on time and benefits, right? You can pay for that yourself. But I think the balance of the experience the expected value transfer. I like the way you said that because it's clear, you know, what we're trying to do is align to founder vision for where they want to be one to three years from now. And, you know, if the founder vision is an exit, you know, driving toward the event, the liquidity event is a gigantic value transfer. And I think that's one of our specialties and we're trying to figure out how to make that compelling to people. So if you have any big ideas, I'd love it. You know, like, We've probably had more than a billion dollars in exits. I think that's the number in an old capabilities presentation. But you know, my exit in two years from now is not your historical exit. So we're trying to figure out how to message that a little bit. Yeah, and that's
1: why I like to use the word value instead of cost, because I think cost is, it already sounds like a negative. Like it already sounds like money coming out of their company going to the agency, whereas you know, I think value gives you a lot more room sort of play around and kind of better express what you can add.
0: Sure. I mean, I think like one of the propositions we talk about is time to accomplishment, right? With an experienced team, if you get got the right team, you're not waiting six to nine months for them to figure it out.
1: Exactly. And also like if you're in a competitive space, I think a lot of founders don't realize this. Like if you waste time working with the wrong partner or agency, Sometimes you cannot grab that market share back once you sort of lose it, or sort of you lose your lead. Like if you fall too far behind, it might be sort of too late and you know, you might have to just close shop at some point. So I think that's the other part of it is you just, you don't have an unlimited amount of time or opportunities to sort of drive growth.
0: Yeah. Especially if you've taken investor money recently, right? The next thing that starts happening is they click the stopwatch and it's like, how much time is it going to take for you to make good on your promises? So I think that's a big value of hiring experienced people inside as well as, you know, your partners. That was actually helpful to me. I'm going to be using some of that stuff. So thanks, Andrew. Sure. That was pretty awesome. Hey, let's get contemporary. I want to talk about ChatGPT because I have some very strong feelings about it, but I want to know what your current thinking is on it and how you might be recommending clients take advantage of this technology.
1: Sure. So I think... If you're not learning how to use ChatGPT, I think you'll eventually fall behind. Like an analogy I heard recently that made sense is you'd be like a finance person who just doesn't know how to use Excel. Like it would just be very difficult for you, I think, to keep up. That's sort of my latest thinking behind it. You know, I think there is still time to obviously learn it and it's not gonna transition right away, but I think you should be actively thinking about how to learn it specifically for your job function or industry.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective. You know, I have a few thoughts, and this is the first time I'm airing them publicly, so welcome your feedback. First of all, I think that you're right. You have to know how to use it. It's a lot like when desktop publishing first came out, though. Desktop publishing didn't make everybody a great designer, and I don't think Chat GPT is going to make everybody a great marketer or a great copywriter. And a lot of what I see on social media today is, you know, almost everybody is now an instant expert on how to prompt this technology to churn out content. And one of my concerns is that the whole setup is that it's basically reusing existing content, maybe in novel ways, but there's not a new idea in there. And I think the proposition of marketing people like us is that we're going to be bringing some new ideas to market, new ways of communicating. So. Maybe we have to set expectations among our C-suite peers as to what can and can't be accomplished with a tool like this.
1: Exactly, and I think it's also a mistake to think that, you know, just cause ChatGPT can output a blog post or like a LinkedIn post or even a Twitter thread, that it's gonna be like any good. Basically some of the best prompts or models I've seen require you feeding ChatGPT a lot of like what you think is great content. And then almost asking it to use like a similar style to even output something decent. But even something like that, there's so much work that has to go into the prompt because you're almost training it over time. So I think that's gonna be the sort of the evolution of it that you're gonna have to almost train it individually with your content, your brand guidelines, your whatever unique voice to ideally get it to you know output anything decent that you can use.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. One fun thing people might want to try is asking it to create the content in the style of a favorite author or a favorite subject matter expert. I've actually had it write haiku, which was kind of fun, but I also had it write a blog post in the style of one of my favorite authors, a guy named Kurt Vonnegut, and it sort of did it. It's able to pick up styles of great copywriters. So if you have a favorite copywriter like David Ogilvie, or I think it's John Carlton, it'll actually pick up those kind of styles, but still you're right. You have to do a lot of work to set this machine up for some success, and then you better edit it and make sure it's accurate. So I think that was fun to just sort of put that out there. I think that's a conversation people want to hear about. And maybe to land our episode, I think I told you my new favorite question, I'd like to ask all my CMO guests, is looking back on recent stuff in your career, what would you do differently and try and give us a little bit of insight into like what the situation was, the decision you made and why you might do things differently.
1: Sure, so I think one of the best decisions I made was in early December. So about four months ago, I started regularly posting and engaging on LinkedIn and just learning how building organic reach and engagement on LinkedIn works. I wish I would have started doing that sooner, like three, four or five years ago because basically the results I'm seeing have been pretty impressive, whether I'm reaching out to people, like just getting more responses. Once in a while, I get sort of inbounds. When I'm doing discovery type calls, prospects are actually excited to talk to me just because they've seen my posts and they bring them up. And then even with current clients, I feel like it helps retain clients because they're seeing your posts and you're staying top of mind. So It's one of those things that I think is, you know, not that hard to learn, but, you know, I wish I would have done it a while back.
0: Yeah, I think that we all have our content creation regrets, and many of them are around, you know, if we had done it, you know, sometime earlier in our careers, might have propelled us earlier to the success we're seeking. Where are you posting your stuff? Are you doing a LinkedIn newsletter or is it just in your, just right in your feed?
1: It's right in my feed. And where I've seen the most success is also like engaging with other people who cover similar topics. So if I'm going to be writing about growth marketing, engaging with other growth marketers, like by commenting on their posts helps my posts get more traction. So just from doing that over the last few months, now when I typically post like an average post gets about you know 50 likes like 30 comments or so. And and a lot of that has just been sort of from engaging with other people's posts. So I think that's the key to it. I think it's not to think of LinkedIn as like a, you know, a channel where you're going to post company announcements and upcoming events and that kind of stuff. It's more to think of it as kind of an engagement and sort of a back and forth channel.
0: So maybe a little bit of community building as opposed to just barfing up your content.
1: Exactly. Community building and also how you can support others. Because The more you support others, the more they'll engage with your content and sort of support you back. And that can be in a lot of ways, like they might refer clients to you. They might, you know, let you know about job opportunities. There's a lot of sort of advantage in in ways people end up supporting you on there.
0: Well, awesome. I think that's a great place to land our episode. Andrew, I want to say thank you so much. It was fun to meet you and speak with you on the podcast. If people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Just connect with me on LinkedIn. I post on there regularly and I'm always looking to connect with new people on there.
0: Excellent. So that's Andrew and your last name spelled B-O-L-I-S, right? That's correct. Awesome. And if you want to reach me on LinkedIn, it's LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed. And they can learn more about us on our website at austinlawrence.com. Hey, Andrew, thanks again for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on the show, Ken.
0: Thanks for listening to
1: the SaaS Backwards podcast. Brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempett at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe and thanks again for listening.